I mean, that's absolutely mind blowing to think of this this little island that is taking this leadership role in tackling climate change. Hi and welcome to a new episode of the podcast Gender and Climate. This is Annika. In this podcast, I interview experts about the nexus of gender and climate change and we discuss how people all around the world are affected. As we can only combat the climate catastrophe while achieving gender equality, my goal is to generate attention for the deeply interconnected topics of gender equality and climate justice. We need all hands on deck in order to overcome the crisis of our time, because only together we can change our world for the better. In this episode, I speak to Marta Santibanez. Marta is a journalist and the co-founder of the JVA Human Rights Journal. In this episode, we discuss the study her team conducted in Cuba, why the need for action creates strength, why only creativity can be the solution in the fight against the climate crisis, and how Cuban women know how to use that in their daily lives. I would be delighted if you could share your interests, who you are, why you're listening, so I can design the following episodes according to your interest. Also, please reach out if you want to share your story to podcast.gender.climate at gmail.com. So, let's get started. Hi, Marta. I'm so happy to have you here today. I'm so happy to be finally doing this. I think it's taken us, I, I don't even want to count the number of months it's taken us to sort this out. Yeah, exactly. I, I just I just uh, had a look and it was like 30 emails going back and forth, looking and finding, finding a date for today. <laughs> it, it's embarrassing um I can only I can only say that it's been embarrassing for myself it makes me look horrible but um I'm just very thrilled to be here yeah I'm I'm very happy you're here as well so <laughs> thank you for being here great, great. <laughs> <laughs> um Marta we want to talk today about uh, your research um in Cuba but first of all I would like to know where you're right now actually and where did you grow up to give to give us a little background of who you are. Oh, that's always a tricky question. So I grew up in Madrid, Spain. Um, and, and I like that you ask where you grew up, not where you're from, because I have no idea where I'm from. And when people ask me where I, where I come from, I just look at them very puzzled and say, well, I grew up in Madrid and now I don't live there. Um, so I grew up in Madrid. Um, in a lovely suburban town and when I was about 15 I left Madrid and went to school somewhere else so I was very very lucky to be given the opportunity to go to school in the States and then I went to school in Bosnia-Herzegovina um, and then after that I moved to London um, so I came here for uni a good six and a half years ago and I've stayed since. I think London does this to some people. You think you're only going to be here for two, three years, and then you blink, and seven years later, you're wondering what on earth you're still doing here. Um, but I do, I do love this city. It's filled with great opportunities for me. So I work as a reporter and 
and it's a great place for me to be at. So, so to say, you have a very colorful background. How I'm lived in several um, places. A little, a little. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think it's important to bring it up because everything that I do and everything that I that I say, even the way that I speak, it's so determined by this background. Yeah. It it would be absurd to deny it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, your name. I mean, Santibanes. Yeah is not yeah. a very common English name. <laughs> nope. <laughs> no, it takes quite a bit of practice, but I've learned to spell it out um, on, how do you call that, the NASA alphabet? You know, the alphabet, the, the way you can spell out names yeah. so that everybody, yeah. mm -hmm. military uses it and, and whatever. It took me a good couple of years, but I can now go, Sarah, Alpha, November, Tango, India, Victor, Alpha, November, Echo, Zulu. And it makes people very confused. Yeah. <laughs> I would be confused as well if you came to me like on the phone. Oh, it's. Marta, let's dive very deep into into the research of your group because I'm super interested. Um, and after 30 emails, I'm even more interested <laughs> in it. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. How, where do you want to start? Well, first of all, give us a little background of tell us of uh, what did this, what did uh, well, like what did you do the study on, um, why did you do the study, and how did you come up with, and what's the background like, all of it. Just get, just get into talking. So, <laughs> okay, okay, let's get let's get started. So, I think what's really important to say um, to begin with is this was a project that was developed as a team of three. So I worked with two other fantastic, fantastic women, um, Arsu John Askin and Caitlin Reed. Um, and Arsu had been working on this project for about a year, just developing in her head um, before we came on board. So she had this sort of initial, I don't know, foundational idea um, from which we derived. And this is a project we worked on a good three years ago, which I also think is important to highlight, both in terms of how much time we've had to think about and process all of the information that we had, and also the fact that the data that we're talking about is old. It's, mm -hmm. not, it's not coming from last month, it's coming from three years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and so we, we wanted to look at the nexus between gender and climate change, which is obviously very, very topical for our podcast today. But when we started looking into it, we, we decided to, to consider the exceptional really. Um, and so we decided that we would look into this nexus in Cuba. And Cuba is a, is a very distinct and unique place for very many different reasons. I mean, I'm sure you've heard stories, if you don't know the history of Cuba at all, I'm, I'm sure you've heard stories about the revolution, about Fidel Castro, about the movement against American imperialism, um, and just this very strong dominant culture, both in the island, but also kind of in our collective imagination. Yeah. Um, now, thinking of, of gender and climate change more specifically, what makes Cuba even more interesting is that since the revolution in the 60s, Cuba became a leader 
in um, gender equality in a way that was incomparable with anywhere else in the region, in the Caribbean, and, and really anywhere else in the world at the time. So after the revolution, the new government establishes something called the Federation of Cuban Women, uh, which is an organization that essentially all Cuban women become part of the moment they turn 15. Um, I believe it's 15. And it allows women to come together and it, it looks for leadership and policy for women. And so the Federation has a seat in government. So, so we're talking about a country that since the 1960s has had a very strong set of female leaders within government, within, you know, within the revolution itself. Um, and that's very much defined culture for women who have grown up there since. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's still very like it's still a, a sexist country. There's still lots of misogyny. You walk up and down the street and people will look at you and stare at you and whistle at you. Um but but there is a sort of ingrained understanding of the equality between the, the genders that I don't think you can take for granted in other places. Mm -hmm. Um and then well, but <laughs> finally <laughs> Finally, the third thing that makes Cuba very, very interesting is that it set out a few years ago um, a policy plan called Tarea Vida, which uh, stands for Life Task, which is a um, hundred year, 11 point policy plan to tackle climate change. And that's just mind blowing. Yeah. I mean, that's absolutely mind blowing to think of this little tiny island not so tiny, but this, this little island, pretty irrelevant for most day-to-day -day interactions in the UK, in the US, in anywhere in the world that is taking this leadership role in tackling climate change. So we look at all of this and we thought, this is, this is so unique. We, we need to learn what's happening here. Because simultaneously, remember, we're talking about this Marxist-Leninist revolutionary state where there's no freedom of the press, where there's no freedom to research, there's very, very little information coming out to tell us what really is going on here. So, so it just brought up so many questions that we absolutely decided we had to go and, and find some answers for. Yeah. So we found some funding that wasn't easy and it's not a negligible part of the of the project um, and I feel like this is a really good moment to thank our sponsors who are the Royal Geographical Society, the uh, London School of Economics and the Grantham Research Institute for Climate Change and the Environment. Sorry for the plug. Um, and we planned out as best as we could and in August of 2019 we took off and so we spent about a month in Cuba um, just talking to people. I mean, I'm, I'm a reporter by trade, so my job is to talk to people. Um, and I'm very grateful that all of the research that I've done in, in my previous life, which was very much more academic focused, has always been qualitative. So I've just mm -hmm. had the chance to talk and talk and talk yeah which I'm sure you'll find out by the end of our chat today is something I love doing <laughs> that's awesome so you're right here 
um so so that that was our project um and we i think we summarize the findings like a simple nugget line um and we we talked after coming back from cuba about how all of these factors come together in cuba and turn women from this sort of very very um passive subjects in the climate change struggle into very active empowered agents for mm-hmm. spearheading incredible efforts to mitigate and push back against the challenges that the island is inevitably facing and it's fascinating yeah so it's not just empty words um make women agents of change but uh, in Cuba they are really agents of change if I get it right um in a very sort of in, in the sense that there's just no other way yeah um because because the island has gone through so much and and fairly recently so so if you look at the history of Cuba I mean something that we Um, found very, very interesting. And feel free to cut me off if I'm completely diverting and saying something that is uninteresting. But Cuba went through the revolution and then for about 20 years, it had the support of the Soviet Union. And everything they did, I mean, everything they did was just backed up by the Soviet Union. They had money pushed into the island. And then the 90s came, the Soviet Union collapsed and that money pot just vanished. So in the early 90s, Cuba goes through something they call the special period. Literally, that's the way the government refers to one of the worst economic crises the country has ever gone through, the special period. Isn't that bizarre? Absolutely. People people are starving and you're calling it the special period. Um, And and so there's no fuel, there's very little food. And so people out of need have to take on all of these very, very resolute solutions to address the fact that they need to eat um, and they need to move. So they start cycling around, they develop their own little community farms. it's It's not a moral issue, it's pure bare necessity, but it sticks. And so, we go there 30 years, yeah, nearly 30 years since this has happened. Um, and, and people still cycle around. And now they talk, like, they talk about saving on fuel, but they also talk about, well, it's good for the climate. Yeah. Um, and, and people, I mean, we met some women who opened up farms during special period in Havana to help feed their communities. And they've kept them and grown them and developed them. And they talk about the the benefits for the climate of cultivating their own food and growing their own produce. But they they also talk about the fact that they, I mean, they don't really have an option. So it's it's a it's interesting how I suppose from a very theoretical perspective, how ideologies justifying everything 
that the material conditions are making you do. Mm-hmm. Um, but it works out for everybody because the government has a great, great justification for a lot of policy decisions. Um, and it, it helps the environment and it helps address these challenges. Mm-hmm. So would you say that there is something that you could put into words like how the nexus is really represented or would you say well in cuba we can't really see that nexus or how would you put that into a word there it definitely is there i mean so so tornadoes come tornado um i mean extreme weather events come and they're coming and the the people who stay behind picking up the like cleaning up the house and making it getting everything ready to prepare for this extreme rainfall other women mm-hmm. the people who will do the heavy work of rebuilding and recovering will be the women mm-hmm. the people who don't really own the land are the women men own the land mm-hmm. women don't so, so there is that nexus, definitely. Mm-hmm. But within that, there is a lot of empowerment. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so while, and there's a lot of acknowledgement of that situation, there's no, there's no victimism. We found that women in Cuba were facing all of the vulnerabilities that affect women in every other place in the world. And they, they were affected by these vulnerabilities. They were affected by the fact that they're women and they're discriminated against. They were affected by the fact that they live in a small island developing nation with very little economic resource um, and with very little access to whatever resource is there. We also found that these women were incredibly, incredibly resolute in finding ways to address these issues and taking leadership in responding to the challenge of climate change. So it goes in in many different ways. I I talked to you about the woman who had this little farm in Havana. It was absolutely lovely. But we met another woman who developed um, a plan to map towns. So she would go to different towns in the country and develop, um, they developed with her team a strategy to get everybody involved in mapping the town and mapping where the hospital was and where the more vulnerable people lived and where there was shelter if it was needed. And she would go to these different places and put this all together with knowledge from everybody in the community and then use that to prepare the town for any any extreme weather event that would be coming. And what we what we saw it's just this very smart ways to tackle these issues that were very innovative, very entrepreneurial, um, and then very intelligently linked with this, like as I mentioned, this entire sort of government policy slash ideology of, well, now we need to be the pioneers in tackling climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we didn't see the government actually offering any money or actually offering any, any other form of resource to take on these projects. Mm-hmm. But 
in a country that is heavily monitored, that is heavily controlling, to have this, this access by, by claiming, no, we're, we're, we're working on climate change, therefore you need to allow us to do this work. Yeah. It opened up room to, to do mm -hmm. anything. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, I mean, for me, the most incredible and my colleagues loved so much because it was, it was such a me thing to love this woman as much as I did. But the most incredible example came from um, this group of journalists and I'm a journalist and journalism stories I mean, have these in spotlight, I bowl every time I see it. And I've seen it many times. I'm, I'm big into your like dreamy journalism story. But we met these journalists who'd created, he was essentially one independent media outlet. And they were working to report independently on many different topics. And the reason they gained the access that they did to government sources, to, to different cities to actually reach find the stories that they wanted is because they, their main focus was on climate change reporting. And so because the government was willing to acknowledge climate change as a big problem that was affecting the island, and it made sense that they would because they hadn't caused climate change, mm -hmm. um, they, they could talk about this. And in writing about climate change, they could write about so much more. And so it's just fascinating how you get this. I feel like everything I'm saying is just making this really mesh, it's a huge mesh of ideas and concepts. But I, I wish there was a, a more clear headed way of explaining it, but it's just not clear, it's not neat. Mm -hmm. um, it's this push and pull of ideas and, and need and material need and emotional need that, um, creates a lot of space for projects and and change yeah yeah so i can hear that creativity and the the innovative way of thinking and acting is what what impressed you a lot and the activism of the people there do i get that right? yeah yeah definitely um yeah yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but it also became. I mean, it was it was very shocking and very impressive. But it also became so evident. How else would they do it if not by being creative? Of course, of course. The only way uh, we get through it is the way forward, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So it it just became absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Um, like just right before we started the interview and recording, um, you told me something about the money and the money flows and about the investment. Um, could you recapitulate that again, what you said, because, um, it's insane if we look how much money goes into, into the nexus of gender and climate. What we see, yeah, because <laughs> I think I that's think a very were, valuable point you made. There. I think we were talking about how frustrating it is to work in this. Yeah, that's in this line. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's it's insane. Um, and and as I said earlier, I mean, I started working on this good 
three and a half years ago. And, and since then, I've been working on this project and in other projects sort of on and off. So I can't say that my full-time job is to look at climate change and gender. But I, I would say I've done a fair bit of reading in the topic. And while there is so much that has been done and has been advanced and has been looked into when it comes to climate change and gender, there's so many gaps that need to be filled. So, I mean, when we, when we did this, nobody had ever looked into climate change in Cuba and the way it affected women and been able to publish it outside of Cuba. Mm-hmm. And this is not, and I want to make this point, this is not to diminish in any way the fantastic work that, <clears throat> excuse me, that um, Cuban researchers are doing within the island, which they are doing. But the struggle to find the literature to put together a proposal and then take it to the people that would fund us, it is insane. It is absolutely insane when we know with with data to back it that climate change affects women in a way that it doesn't affect men. Mm -hmm. We know this. And so to think that we are still lacking the capability to look at exactly how it is affecting them differently and what type of solutions we can put together to address this. I mean, you're just shaking your hand. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just shaking my head and, <laughs> and and thinking how how is this, how is this a thing? But even, I mean, if I take it back to to say the last three years and the work that we've done since we came back from from Cuba, getting people to understand this and getting people to want to hear it and get want to talk about it. I mean, Anika, you you do a podcast on this and it's so unique and it's so amazing. But, but the amount of times I've had to defend the fact that, yes, yes, climate change does have a different impact on women than men. Yes, I'm telling you, I've been there, I've seen it. The people that stay behind to rebuild are women. The people who are also taking on the housework are women. The people who are also caring for the sick and the children are women. Yeah. And again, we, we go back to the point we were making earlier, They're not owning the land. They're not making as much money as men do. And all of this is a different impact and it's it's a long-term impact. And I mean, do do we know the resource we're missing out because these women are not able to actually we, we take know on their full potential or yeah we, we know we know the we know the uh, the potential and the actually also the economical potential we're missing out because if women would be in uh, like employed as men all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't have the figures by hand now, but it's something around um, $11 billion, I think we're missing out, or somewhere around 5% of the global GDP. So it's an insane higher number um, economically as well that we're missing out. Um, so even, even if you don't care about equality, which you should, but even if you don't care, There's, there's a real reason. There's a monetary reason. Exactly, exactly. To argue for this. Um, <laughs> And that should be actually... But, that. 
well, <laughs> people care about, right? I mean, you can make that argument, but then it's up to you, I suppose. <laughs> However you go to sleep at night. Yeah. Um, but it's, yes, it, it's such a struggle. And I think, I think thankfully it's becoming, well, in general, climate change is finally becoming the sort of headline story that it should have been for the last 30 years, um, probably even longer. And, Since and we're finally- 1950, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and finally, there, there seems to be a genuine interest in governments in, in putting in the resources that we need to address climate change. Um, and so I think looking forward, it should hopefully be a bit easier mm -hmm. to, to tackle these questions. I mean, when I think back on this project that we did, we, we spent about a month in Cuba, which really isn't that long. Um, and we gathered so much data and gathered so much evidence and so many stories. But there's, there's still, it, it opened way more questions than it answered. And really, when we, when we were coming back from this field work, our initial aim was always to be back there within the year. We know what happened. Um, 2020 kicked in and yeah. upended everybody's lives. But, but the plan was always to go back and, and take all of these new questions and take all of the initial answers and see the extent to which they actually worked. It's also, I mean, this specific case is, I think it's incredible because it's so exceptional and we can learn so much from exceptionality, but we also need to be very mindful of, of the specifics within such a unique case. When we were in Cuba, um, it'd been just months since they'd voted for a new constitution. The government was being completely restructured in terms of, of the, the institutional level. I don't mean the people at the top, um, but the institutional structures were changing very rapidly. Even, even internet access. When I was in Cuba two and a half years ago, getting internet was extremely difficult. Getting a data card for your phone with one or two gigabytes of data was about $40 US dollars in a country where that's, that's a monthly wage. Mm -hmm. um, people, people make more money, but that's, that's a government monthly wage. Um, and if you wanted to get Wi-Fi, it was Wi-Fi that you had to access with a government-issued card, a government-issued network. I mean, the first thing that you would see when you would click on joining network was this huge sign telling you, like, telling you about the U.S. embargo, which I thought was absolutely, absolutely hilarious. And, and these things have changed a lot. I met up with one of my, um, we, we made some wonderful friends during our time there. And one of them is now living in Bristol. And I met up with him last August and he was telling me like, 
it, it's just a different country. Mm-hmm. Um, COVID has taken, ha- has done a, a very, very funky job in Cuba. There's been a lot of protests against the government. There's been a lot of movement against the government for the first time in over 50 years. Mm-hmm. And all of these things are obviously, obviously going to make, I mean, they make our data slightly obsolete. Um, and I say slightly very cautiously because I don't think that makes it in any way relevant. I think it just makes it something that you need to look at with caution. Yeah. Um, and it it makes me want to go and look at all of this again to see how how this changes affect everything else that we've been talking about. Um, yeah. Thank you, Marta. Um, we're already coming to the end, um, and I'd like to close the podcast always with the question. Um, which recommendations would you give to break the nexus of gender and climate? Maybe specifically in Cuba or worldwide? Um, we, we sat down to look at policy recommendations we could make from the data we had. And it's so difficult. It's so, so difficult. I think our main point was looking at this specific case, just continue to, if not support, don't hinder this project. Um, I think There's, there's so much value in community work when it comes to addressing climate change because communities know themselves best and communities understand what they need to, to do and, and what the big problem is going to be better than anybody else is going to, is going to be able to. So one of the things we saw very evidently was that <clears throat> and putting that front and center in anything you do, I think is key. And, and I think that in itself is a way of targeting this nexus because it's, it's a lot easier for um, women and, and goodness, I say this with so much care because I really don't want to put words into women as a whole and women as a group but we did see that it became so much easier for women to step forward when they were just working for something they understood something they they knew well Mm -hmm. Um, and again I'm really not trying to minimize them or patronize them on the contrary I think it's it's a way to let the community teach us how to support them best. It's the the challenges between gender and climate change are so ingrained into so many social, cultural concepts that are just 
part of our lives for better and mostly for worse. Um, and I wish I had an answer to, to say, how do we do this? Um, from my work and not just here, but from my, from my work in general in my life, I find that the answer often is, hold on, take a second, listen. Okay, what's your proposed solution? Okay, let's take that forward. Um, and I think helping those communities empower themselves bit by bit is, is the best answer. I hope that's not too vague. No, no, it's actually one of the answers put in a slightly different way. Um, we like I hear often because I'm not I'm not making claims of originality. <laughs> All right, <laughs> yeah, but, but as you said, communities know best what they need. Yeah, um, and, and and we talk about it so much. Like, yeah, it, it's not an original thought. Um, we talk about it so much, but how often do we actually do it? Like, very little. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I mean, I, it's resource intensive to send somebody into each of these communities for months and months and months. Um, to actually learn learn from them and and be able to take these ideas forward, but to say that it's resource intensive is is not a good enough excuse not to do it. Um, but again, we we go back to the point we were making um, earlier. If you don't if you don't let this research happen if you don't let these stories be told, then it becomes very difficult to advocate for this. Yeah. And that's why we're here. To and that's tell what the we're stories here. <laughs> and to do the research and to share the stories. I think that's a very important point as well. Marta, I thank you so, so much. It was lovely. Thank you so much, Anika. Lovely talking to you, Anna. So, so glad we finally got to do this. I really, <laughs> really enjoyed it. And I want to thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Please make sure to hit the bell to not miss any episode. Because only together, we can change our world for the better.